Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this time to come together to serve you and to worship you through the study of your word. And we pray right now that our hearts would be drawn closer to you as we explore your text and dive in a bit to what it means to strive to be not like the nations and to strive to become a bit more of your people in this world, building your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So the title of today's talk is Like the Nations. Now, last week, uh, Dr. Cindy Parker talked a bit about the book of Deuteronomy and how the book of Deuteronomy is functioning and how one of the themes of Deuteronomy is um, how so much the land that they are going to be into is not like the land of Egypt. I don't know if you recall all of her parallels. I was fascinated by the message. Um, but we aren't to be an empire, right? We're not to have a king. We aren't going to be in a place that's easily watered or tended. It's a, wa- it's a land that God has God's eye on. It's a land that only gets water from heaven. Um, whereas in Egypt, it's so easy to grow something. You just sort of drag your foot in the ground right by the Nile, and you can start your irrigation and have the crops come up. Now, in the middle of all that, then, Israel is often told throughout Deuteronomy and throughout other passages that they are not to be like the nations of the land that they are going into. And God has frequently said to them, um, this is why the land is vomiting out the people in front of you. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, all of these people who are in this land previously, whom God has stole over, and those are also God's people, right? God is God of all. Um, God is saying to them, you're going to have to get out of the land, and these people are going into the land. The land is vomiting you out, and Israel is going to come in because of the way that they had behaved. And God tells Israel, and if you behave that way too, the land will also vomit you out. So let's look then as we move a bit from understanding how the land is supposed to function. And Kevin and I, two and a half, two weeks ago, talked about the book of Judges and how the book of Judges is functioning um, and all of that, let's start to move into how Israel pushes into monarchy and gets a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. I'll just stop right there. Samuel is a prophet. He was raised in the um, tabernacle, the house of God, from a young age when his mother Hannah went and prayed for a son. Um, Eli, the priest that was there at that time, uh, ended up raising Samuel sort of as a child in God's house as Hannah dedicates Samuel to God's purposes. And the the name Samuel, Shmuel, means God has heard. So Samuel is a prophet, um, and he is a little bit like unto the judges, but he is not a king. That's where he's come from. And you can read that first story of Samuel from Joshua, Judges, and Ruth to Samuel in the first eight chapters. So Samuel's now old, and he appoints his sons as Israel's leaders, and the name of his firstborn was Yoel, Joel, and the name of his second was Avijah, Aviyah. They served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. This was also the problem with Eli's sons. So it seems that Samuel has learned how to parent a bit from Eli, or how not to parent a bit from Eli. So proceeding then, all the elders of Israel gather together and come to Samuel at Ramah, and they say this, you are old. That's how all good leadership conversations start. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. You're old and you're a terrible father. Let's continue. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now this is immediately a problem, right? We 
have been told from the beginning in all of Deuteronomy and all the other places that we are not to be like the other nations. And their immediate request starts with, we want to be like the nations, so give us a king. It's not, um, but mom, everybody else gets to do it, right? And I remember saying that to my parent regularly, my mother particularly, growing up, just saying, but mom... Heather's mom's letting her go. And she was like, well, I'm not Heather's mother, right? Everybody get that same response? Like, she's not my daughter. Yeah, I'm, pre- I'm planning my lines now because I already have a three-nager. So uh, the entire nation comes forward and they say, get, we want to be like everybody else. I also want my nose pierced, right? I also want my eyebrow pierced. All of the things that we begged our parents for early on. Um, when I got my second piercing in my left ear, my mother was like, she wept. I was in college, and she told me I was never going to get a job. She was like, that's it. You're just never going to get a job. She was just like so over the edge. Like, that's, you'll just never get a job. That second piercing. I'm like, I think we're going to be okay, Mom. Yeah. Remember then again, just break for a moment into Leviticus chapter 18. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, Canaan, where you're going, because you should not follow their practices. You must obey my laws. Be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. This is Leviticus 18. So all, of God, all that God has set them up to believe and to do, they have failed in this very moment. So they say in, in verse 6, they said, Give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, this is an incredibly important line because I think this is true, again, still for all of us today, that there are moments in time where we can choose to reject or accept God's kingship and lordship in our lives. And this is what the people of Israel are doing, and God's very clear. Don't take this personally, Samuel. It's, it's not you, it's me, right? They have decided that I shall not be their king. And then that moment, and we're going to start to explore this, there's going to be a whole series of repercussions. And I have some sympathy for this. God cannot be seen. And it says this also very much in the Torah. Don't you remember when I brought you to Sinai, you saw no form, you only heard a voice. God cannot be seen. But those other nations, they have things that can be seen. They have kings that can be seen and touched and, and felt and argued with and begged with, right? They have, they have gods that can be seen and touched. They're made out of wood and stone. Ezekiel calls them dung balls. Um, that's the word for idols that Ezekiel will use the whole time is, well, you worship your dung balls. Um, I'm sorry, that's actually the, the, the cleanest way I can say what Ezekiel says. And, um, and so, but you have to understand that I have some sympathy for that, right? You, you can see it. You can touch it. You can have some form in your head. The Israelites have none of this, and they've been told to run away from any of those other practices. But they now are struggling. They want to be like the other nations. Come on, Dad, everybody's doing it. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, God says, until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who will reign over them will claim as what the king will claim as his rights. And then they go through this laundry list of all the bad stuff the king is going to do to Israel. And so Israel, the elders, are listening. Samuel tells them the words of the Lord. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He's going to take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they're going to have to run in front of his chariots. Get it? Like the king's going to hide in the back, 
and your sons are going to take the front line. Doesn't that sound like the king that they're going to get in a few minutes? You can think of, well, yeah. Okay, so some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others will plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He's going to take your daughters, and they will be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys, he's going to take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You're, you're, you're choosing a system in which to live in, which is not the system God has chosen for God's people. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No. They said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. So here's what they want. They want a leader. They want somebody to go out before them, and they want somebody to fight their battles. Let's pay attention and see if that's what they get. And Samuel heard all that people said. He repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered them, listen to them, and give them a king. The verse into the chapter, the story continues, 1 Samuel 9, okay? And God says this, obey them and give them a king. Tomorrow I'm going to send you a man from Benjamin and anoint him as leaders, leader over the Israelites. And uh, please stand by now for we're going to have to interrupt our programming. What we should have just stopped with in that moment is that God has now said that a king from Benjamin will be the one that's anointed. And if you were paying at all attention when we were talking about the book of Judges, and the last chapters um, of Judges that were deeply difficult. Let's go back there because why not revisit a very upsetting chapter? Remember that the entire book of Judges is bracketed by this framing. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Regarding how we read the text, we have to remember, let's not be naive. I don't think the authors of this text were naive when they wrote it. The book of Judges was not written real time, if that makes sense. It was not written like, oh, and Deborah's out, and she's in the field, and she's going, and she's fighting, and, she, and Sisera's head has been crushed by a hammer. Okay. Uh, now So instead, they're looking back from the monarchy and describing what the judges had been doing, how life had been lived, and they're writing their story but also with the intention of setting it up for, here's why we need a king. So they're writing it from the perspective of later on monarchy, right? We're all cool with that. That doesn't mean it's not the word of God. I'm just saying it doesn't come down from heaven on a golden thread or like buzz in somebody's ears necessarily, right? Like it's just, if that upset you, I apologize. Um, It's a real text and the word becomes flesh, right? And people are, are doing this. So the whole book of Judges is framed by everything's gone badly gone to pot and we need to fix it. So if you'll recall then at the end of the book of Judges, there was a man, a Levite who has a concubine as his wife and he has been with her, but she has left him. In in the Bible, it basically says she's, she's, um, how many young people are in the room? She has whored uh, got it. Guy saw one in the back. She has been unfaithful to him and, um, has left. Okay. So she's gone back to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. Now, the, Kong, the Levite, his homeland is in Ephraim in the north. So after some time, about four months or so, she, she's like, I'm out. 
Um, and I have to believe, because hashtag me too, there might have been a reason why that woman left based on the rest of the story. Um, so the, the, the Levite and the servant go back to Bethlehem to get her. And the father is happy to see him and he greets him and brings him in and persuades him to stay a series of days. Don't go yet. They stay three days, which is like the, the normative time in ancient Near Eastern, Middle Eastern hospitality. And then come the fourth day, the father's like, no, don't go yet. Just stay. So he stays another day. It's late. You know, they'll stay one more day. And by the fifth day, he's like, I'm going to go. No, stay and eat. So they get a late start. And as they get that late start then from Jerusalem, which Bethlehem's just about four, four miles, six miles so south of Jerusalem in Judah, they're going to go north and they're going to pass Jerusalem, which at this time there are, is not held by Israel. Okay, so there are Jebusites living there. They're not Israelites living in Jerusalem. And so as they're walking, then the man says, like, we're not going to stop there because those people aren't Israelites. We can't trust them. They're not good folk. Um, So we can't stop in Jerusalem. We're going to go on and press on towards Gibeah because that is the land and the tribal allotment of Benjamin. Those are where we can find some Israelites and some good hospitality. So they get to the square and a man from Ephraim who happens to be living in Bethlehem in Benjamin territory in Gibeah. He's like, hey, don't stay here. This is not a good idea. You should come inside my house tonight. So they do. But then similar to the story with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of the town come and they want to harm the Ephraimite Levite who is there. And they threaten to harm him. And the owner of the home is like, no, no, take my virgin daughter and the concubine instead. And and, then that... Uh, they're saying, no, we still want to harm the gentleman because this is how we're going to treat people in this town. And instead then, the Levite, again, remember all the stories what not to do, the Levite pushes his concubine out the door. She is um, harmed all night, crawls up to the door frame, right? And in the morning, the Levite opens the door, sees her lying there and says, get up, let's go. Because this is the kind of guy we're talking about. And she's past. She's not there. So he loads her body onto his donkey, takes it to his home up in Ephraim, and disperses the body into 12 pieces and sends it out to the tribes. At which point, how about just a letter, right? We don't have to increase the outrage that's happened. We don't need to be this awful. The whole story is everything that is awful. In response then, after all of the other tribes get that, they're like, Benjamin has got to go down. We have got to respond to this outrage. This is awful. Benjamin sort of must be cleansed. Some of the Israelites take a vow in Mitzpah that none of their uh, family members will ever marry with Benjamites. And so we have then Israel's first civil war, all as a result of this horrific event that happens in Gibeah. Okay? Israel's first civil war occurs. The Israelites who go out, they, they take and kill so many Benjamites that the women are gone too. Everyone's gone. There's, there's no one left. And now then they weep before the Lord. Oh, how sad. One of the tribes has been essentially wiped out. There are only a few Benjamites left. And we've killed all their women, so there's nobody for them to marry. But we've also promised that none of our daughters would marry them, so what should we do? And the end of the story is just as bad as the first big part. They then allow the Benjamites to go toward Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. And as the women are dancing in the vineyards there, the men go and pick them up and steal them away and take them for their wives. Yeah, now back to our readily scheduled programming in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Saul 
a man named Saul, Shaul, is walking down the road. Now, this is all, again, in the context of Israel saying, we want a king. And as they're walking down, then, in the road, um, they are walking because Saul has lost his donkeys. He quite literally cannot keep track of his own donkey. And that's how the Bible wants you to read that verse. Okay, so donkey in the King James is the same in the Hebrew. So Saul is wandering all over the hillside trying to find his own donkey, can't find it. They're going everywhere. And at this point then, Saul starts to get lost. And he's like, you know, now my dad's just going to be worried about me and not these donkeys. We should go back. But then there's this highly respected man of God, and they stumble upon Samuel. Now Samuel is there, and God says, that's the guy. The guy that can't keep track of his own donkey, that's the guy. The guy who's from the tribe of Benjamin, who is from that story I just told you, that's the guy. Wait, wait, wait. The guy whose hometown is Gibeah, where that happened, that's the guy. Samuel anoints Saul. Saul seems to not know at all what's happening. Um, gives him a kiss. And at this point then, Samuel says, okay, right? Um, to Israel, you have rejected God and said appoint a king. So let's take your positions by clan. And this continues throughout the story. You can read these next chapters in Samuel. And as they start to try to find Saul, they're like, okay, it's going to be a guy from the tribe of Benjamin. It's going to be a tribe from the, you know, from the, the community, the clan of Kish. And it's going to be a guy who lives in Gibeah. Like all of these things, they can't find Saul anywhere. And they have this Bueller moment. They're like, Bueller, Bueller, like where'd the guy go? He is hiding among the luggage. Saul is literally hiding from this call. He doesn't want it. They're like, oh, here he is. He's among the luggage. And Saul stands up, and he is tallest of all of the ones. And so you've got a guy that's, that's hiding among the luggage, that cannot keep track of his own donkey, that is from the hometown that treats foreigners this way, that's from the tribe of people that treat people this way. And they're like, yeah, but he's tall. I mean, you can read it. It's like 1 Samuel 10, 23. They're like, wow, look how tall he is. They ran. They, he's hidden himself among the baggage. They ran, brought him out, and he stood among the people, and he was a head taller than any of the others. Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? Samuel says, there's no one like him among all the people. And they start to shout, long live the king. Long live the king. Now Saul's name, Shaul, has the same root as the word to ask or interrogate or demand or beg or wish for. So Saul's name means you asked for it. And that's the king that they get. From this place of Gibeah in the tribal allotment of Benjamin where all of this has happened. And my prayer for all of you is that me too, we don't read over these place names. Because these things are important to our story. 
We should have known there's all this foreshadowing, like the entire last couple books of Judges is why this is going to go bad. And even the prophet Hosea will use the town of Gibeah as a constant example of what's bad. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers of Gibeah? So the prophets use this town in the tribal allotment of Benjamin to talk about how horrible people have behaved and how God's judgment is going to come on them. But at the end of all of this, with all of this madness, they're like, woohoo, long live the king, long live the king, they shout at the end of chapter 10. Saul goes home to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemaker said, how can this fellow save us, right? Because he was hiding among the luggage. Um, And they brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Now, following this, Saul will lead a battle, and he'll have a victory, and so then they're going to have a very good time of, you know, confirming the kingship, but newsflash, not all is going to go well, and very quickly, Saul's going to make some poor choices, things are going to go badly, and um, Saul, the kingdom will be taken away from Saul, Samuel will keep mourning and mourning and mourning for Saul, he weeps over them, God goes, says, how much longer are you going to weep over this guy, let's go find the right guy. As they get there then, this is a story of Samuel going to find David. He goes to Jesse back in Bethlehem in Judah. We're not in Benjamin territory anymore. We're not in Ephraimite territory. We're going to go to all the way back down to Judah in Bethlehem. Remember where the concubine's family was from. And they go there and they find Jesse and the sons and all the sons line up. And the ones that start coming, they're like, wow, that guy's tall, right? And so verse uh, chapter 16 of Samuel, beginning in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And right here at the very beginning, we start to have a story and start to be set up to experience that the Spirit of God will, will trouble Saul so much that he will need heart music played for him, but the Spirit of the Lord is on David. That Saul is tall and he looks like the other kings that the other nations have, but David is short and ruddy but handsome, sort of like of the earth, and he is the one that God is choosing. Samuel anoints David in chapter 16. And after that, David will then load up a donkey, because this is what you do when you go to visit a king. He'll take sheep, load a donkey with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and he will be sent himself to King Saul. Now, in the midst of all of that then, Saul again having this evil, tormented spirit and everything else, we're going to then inaugurate the rest of the monarchy. And again, newsflash, things don't go well. David will be a man after God's own heart, and he will also send the husband of a woman to war um, so that he can marry Bathsheba. He will um, sort of just walk away from his kingship at a point over some issue with his son. He doesn't seem to know how to father. Now, he also writes the Psalms, and he dances before the Lord, and he unites the kingdom, and he moves the capital up towards Jerusalem, and he takes Jerusalem, and all this wonderful stuff happens. But after David, then we have Solomon, and Solomon, although the wisest of all, ends up having 500 to 700 women, right? Um, He makes all of these deals. So all of that stuff that Samuel prophesied that the king would do, Solomon does. 
and he extends harsh labor conditions and slavery. He's the largest expansion of his kingdom, just like the other nations, guys. Isn't it going great? And, and Solomon's kingdom will extend all the way to the north, well beyond, and all the way down to the south, to the Red Sea, where he'll even have a harbor, and all of this expansion. But after he dies, then the people in the northern kingdom, the northern tribes will come and say, hey, your dad was really rough. Can we have a break? And the answer is no. If you think my dad was tough, I'm so much tougher. And then the kingdom breaks, and that's it. The northern kingdom will be exiled in 722 BCE. The southern kingdom will be exiled in 586 BCE. And this is what you get when you are like the other nations. Here's what it looks like when you have that type of monarchy. It is tempting, right? What makes a king like the other nations so attractive? Besides the fact that it's someone you can talk to and hear talk back, um, and somebody you can apprehend visually, you feel like it's an authority, right? I mean, there's all these things that are attractive about having a king. We still see that today. We want some order and some structure, even if it's not the right one. We want power. We want somebody to, to lay down the law. We want to know what's going to happen. And yeah, sure, the king's got a couple problems, but you know, at least this is happening, or at least we're getting fed, or at least... And, and we have all of these attractions to this type of structure. But we should be caught... This should serve as a very cautionary tale that none of us want a theocracy, It's not just the mixture of a political system, right? But it's the mixture of, well, here's the person that is going to operate on on behalf of God's people in this land. And it gets a bit challenging, doesn't it? Now, trying to be like the nations is not only a rejection of God and God's ways. You'd say, well, we had our disobedient moment and we just said, forget you, God. We don't want you as our king and we'd like to try it our own way. But the problem is that when we reject God as king, we reject our own call, our own purpose, and our own work, and our own life. There was so much that God had planned for his people as they lived in this land. So much that God intended. Live there. Care for the poor. Care for the orphan. Care for the foreigner. Care for the widow. Don't put a stumbling pock in front of the blind. Don't, cause, don't insult the deaf. Don't uh, make sure you, you take care of the elders among you. Stand when, you're, when they're in your presence. Teach these commands. Care for your animals. Care for the people among you. You know what? Things, things get shifted and twisted and, and people fall in hard times and, and people get sick and they make poor decisions. So, so every seven years, we're going to have some sort of reckoning of that system and, 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 and we're going to have the year of Jubilee and we're going to work on ways for people to be reconciled. There, were all, there was all this hope that if we had built the kingdom, then as the world passed through the kingdom, people would start to look for the king. That was the point. Not the one they could find in a building, but the one true king. So when we reject God as king, we don't just reject God. We reject our entire purpose of why we've been created as the people of God. What type of community are we to be creating and making here? That when people look and see, they're like, ah, there's a light there in a dark place. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That the world may know that there is a God in Israel. That there will be light in that darkness. That you will be a light to the Gentiles, the nations around us. Not that you would be like them. 
but that you would be distinctly different from them, but a light for them. And, and that can sound very egotistical. We have the light, we will turn it on, but that's just common sense when you're in a dark room. It's just common sense to turn on the light when you're in a dark place. And God had removed the people previously so that Israel could move in and turn on that light. And they have rejected not just God, they have rejected their own purpose and call in this world. And the land will too vomit them out. And yet, what we learn through Saul and David and Solomon, and all of the following kings, northern and southern, and all of the mess, is that God's kingdom and God's kingship will endure because it's never been about all the mistakes that we make or the ways in which we do it right. And there was something, that cry that the ancient Israelites had is still a cry we have today. Give us a king. Give us a king. And we, as the people of God, As we shout today, give us a king, Lord. We have our king. Or don't you remember what the wise men asked Herod and the leaders as they came in? Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? He's not in the palace. He's not there with all of the gold and the jewels and the power. He's born in a lowly state, in a manger with the animals, his birth being heralded by shepherds out in a field. That's where the king is. God ultimately is our king, but the kingship is so very different than all of the things that we were striving for then the power, then the empire, then the promise for everything. And as God had foresaw that an earthly king would do all of this damage and all of this oppression, the exact opposite happens in the person of Jesus. Philippians 2 talks about the type of king we have in the person of Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the king we're looking for. And ultimately, the vision that John has in the book of Revelation is that we have this thing we are looking for where things are set to right and that kingship starts to come down and dwell amongst us. And there's no more tears and there's no more crying and there's no more human trafficking. There's no slavery. There's no oppression. All is being set to right. That is the long view of what it looks like when we have God as our king and we as God's people determine together to be united into that holy house, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's plural in the Greek. All y'all are the temple of God. 
the Holy Spirit dwells here. But only if we carry that presence according to God's design. No one will look for the king unless we build the kingdom. Love God. Love your enemy. Love your neighbor. Care for those weakest among you. Find ways to reach out to the poor. Change the way we build this kingdom amongst us. This is what we're looking for. It's not about who's in charge. It's not about power. It's not about party. It's not about right doctrine. It's about how we build the kingdom here on earth so that people will start to look for that king as those hints of the dwelling place that is to come. So I'll echo it. Give us a king. Knowing full well that my king has come and has shown us how to live humbly, humbling himself even unto death on a cross, risen again, exalted at the right hand of the Father, and excited to build this kingdom with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our story. You are a holy people, a holy nation, a chosen priesthood. All of this, you have work to do. Build the kingdom, and let's look for the king. Amen? Amen.